Blog Talk Radio. KWOD Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand, and it is Sunday afternoon, the 9th of December, can you believe it's almost getting close to the end of the year? I know I can. Is your Christmas shopping done? I haven't even started it. (laughs) So, we're on live today with Donald Jocks. As he says, recently news outlets trumpeted Elon Musk's goal of putting 80,000 people on Mars each year. While the admirable goal, orbital dynamics and the business realities offer insights into how we might not get 80K people. But we could get 28 the first year, 56 the second year, and so on and so on. So we're talking today with the homesteader himself, Donald Jocks, author of The Homestead Project, 12 Steps to a Permanent Lunar Settlement. What's that all about, you wondered? Well, he says, he said in the synopsis, whether looking at Earth orbit, the moon, or Mars, humanity will someday settle space. Don't we hope? In this volume of his book, which is a little booklet, he's working into a bigger, larger volume, he takes a minimalist approach, much like those of the early colonists in America and the intrepid travelers who undertook the westward migration of the United States in the 1860s. On the search that colonists to space will face many of the same constrictions in weight and technology. And his little handbook builds a foundation for survival in almost any hostile planetary environment. So with that, I'd like to say, hey, Don, how are you doing today? Hey, Patty. I'm doing pretty well. And yourself? I'm doing pretty good for Sunday. We're in Arizona, so it's nice here. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, we would not be able to expect this kind of weather on either Mars or the moon, that's for sure. No. What kind of what kind of environment should, could, should be, we be looking for? Well, on the moon, it depends. If you're inside a habitat, it could be quite comfortable in a nice shirt sleeve environment in the somewhere in the range of 70 to, to, to 75 degrees, probably. If you're out on the lunar surface, if you're in the sun, it could be over 200 degrees, over, well, 250 degrees Fahrenheit, or it could be as cold as minus 200 degrees. Now, then again, of course, if you're on Mars and in the sunlight, you're still looking at minus 40, I think, uh, last I read. It was just same odd to me. You know, I mean, Mars is not really that far, uh, that much farther away than the Earth. And yet, they're cold. Well, you know, it's... I always thought it'd be a hot planet, not a cold planet. After all, Mars is a hot sign. <laughs> Mars is an angry sign. Oh, God of angry war. angry is typically God of hot. war. Okay. 
Oh. <laughs> High blood pressure, perhaps? Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, you get red in the face, you wanted a tat. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But here's the thing. The idea of going to the moon or Mars, in most of our news reports and everything that we've had in the last 40 years, going to the moon and going to the Mars has been about science. and Research kind of stuff. Research yeah. kind of stuff. You know, they're looking about what's the age of the planet, what's the age of the moon, how did it form. And, you know, for the most part, as as a person who, who has been a programmer, I've looked at, and I've been a handyman, and I've looked at many different aspects of engineering, and, and I've, I've done a, a layman's study of various aspects of science. I've been part of the Moon Society. You know, the idea of exploring for science sake is a wonderful thing, and, and we've gained a lot of knowledge and understanding about our universe. We, we learn new things about our Earth from the, sci- from the satellites we have in orbit. Yet, the one thing that continues to bite us in the backside is, is that science alone is not going to get us to where the great mass of people want to be, and that's living in these other, uh, shall we say, at best exotic locations. <laughs> Exotic to say the least. <laughs> there is something to be said for being able to emigrate to a new, interesting location. And you know, you, you got to admit that the Moon and Mars are both an interesting location. Yeah. <laughs> but in in the same sense, so is Antarctica. But who wants to to be wearing three parkas at once just to go outside well, and use the toilet? Yes, but there still were some who who definitely took that truck. Yes. They wanted to find out what was there. Uh-huh. Are we not also wondering? I mean, we say, well, we already know it's on the moon, but do we really? To a large degree, we have a pretty good idea of that. But the but problem is, it's, it's like, well, well, here, here's an example. Consider this. If I give you a photograph of the lake in Alaska, and you say, ooh, that's pretty. Yeah. You can't touch the lake. You can't put your toes in the water. You can't. And, and admittedly, in summertime, that lake is quite comfortable. Yeah. You know, well, not, maybe not the water, but the area around that area, um, it, 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 in certain days of the year, you can get in and, and enjoy short sleep weather. And it can be a very pleasant place to live that many people enjoy year-round these days. But if you can't put your bare feet on the sand on that um, beach of that lake, it's just pretty. It's just it's just a pretty picture. picture, No different than a pretty pretty picture of Lake Michigan, Lake Erie, uh, the pond behind Joe Schmo's farm. Or a pretty girl. Or a pretty girl. Yeah, there is that aspect. You can't touch. It's no fun. We won't talk about toes then. Okay. We won't go to toes. Uh, So the the thing that comes to my mind as I look at these announcements, we've had, I mean, it's been a banner week, a banner couple of weeks. We've had had announcements and interviews from Elon Musk Mm -hmm. talking about sending 80,000 people, not just, he didn't say just 80,000 people. He was talking about spending sending eighty thousand people per year. I know that's amazing. 
uh, I mean, the money just boggles my mind thinking well, about but it. See, there's some problems with that, and I'd like to discuss that in a little bit. But also we had this bit from Golden Spike Company, which, by the way, if any of our listeners out there happen to know if they've got a website, let me know because I've been looking for it and can't find it. And for a company that's been around since 2010, they don't have a website to announce no. this stuff, i got to wonder. Yeah. You know? How long they're going to stay around. Well, not only how long they're going to stay around, but, you know, they talk about being uh, staffed by people from NASA. We're talking you know, Gingrich is on their on their board. There's there's some wow. fairly heavy hitters yeah. on their board of directors. And to not have and a website. To not have a website seems seems awfully odd, uh, yeah. especially when they're two years old. Now I can understand they've had negotiations in place and ongoing, and they've they according to the reports I'm seeing, they've succeeded in in negotiating for a ship and lunar orbiter from SpaceX. Um, I presume they've they've probably got, from the way that it sounds, um, several interested people. In fact, uh, Richard Branson from Virgin Galactic has been linked to this in one article. Um, that uh, it is suggested in the article that he is perhaps considering investing, or has invested. Um, but again, I can I, a lot of this reminds me a lot of Microsoft in their pre-release rhetoric on any new operating system. There's a lot of hype. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, guesses and a lot of articles out there propounding what the rumors are, but there's no website to go to. There's no specific brochures. Windows 8 you're talking about? Yeah. Windows 8, yeah. Windows 7, Windows Millennium Edition. They all had this year to year and a half worth of hype before they delivered the thing. And, of course, the Microsoft history is, is that there's always huge bugs yeah. because they spend more time on hype than they do on testing. Yeah. And I'm beginning to wonder if the commercial space programs aren't running into the same problems. Mm. But this is a double-edged sword, especially with commercial space. Because, on the one hand, you want to get some sort of progress reports out to the public in order to engender their support the same time you don't want to fall into the trap that microsoft has fallen into where every time microsoft makes an makes an announcement it's ho-hum another vaporware announcement and then we know that when it finally does hit the shelves it's buggy to say the least Hmm. and most corporate people wait six months or more to even upgrade so it's our, our companies like golden spike and um, and some of these others putting out things um, that they can't deliver or perhaps they're going a little bit too fast mm. in making these big sweeping announcements and not making enough headway in the actual day-to-day tasks that need to happen. So business like, for instance, having a website. That works. Yeah, having a website so that you can communicate and draw interest to right. your business, yeah. uh, granted, these types of companies and NASA way of doing things is that most negotiations occur quietly behind the scenes, yeah. so they may not want a website. I can understand that, but at the same time, if you're trying to, well, okay, yeah. let's let's back up on this and let's look at another thing that I think is a holdover from both Newt Gingrich's uh, purview as a politician and also these NASA people. The price tag they've put on this trip for two, by the way, 
This is a couple's trip. <laughs> it's a trip for two. One, one way to look at it is a couple's trip, yeah. Okay. okay. This is a trip for two to the moon and presumably, and I quote that word presumably off of one of the articles, presumably to return. Let's hope they return safely. Four, are you ready for this? I hope you're sitting down. I hope you've protected your wallet, locked it up in a safe. A cost of $1.5 billion for the mission. For two people. For two people to go to the moon. <laughs> now, I, I don't for, even know for, any billionaire couples who afford that. That's true. Well, now Richard Branson probably could. Right, but he has his own ship. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But here's something to think about. At a cost of $1.5 billion, mm-hmm. all right, your point that the number of people who can actually afford that as a marketable service yeah. is so small at yeah. this point in the economy mm-hmm. as to almost not – I mean, we're looking at, at the first space splash in the pan. Yeah. I mean, I, I I think even Tom Hanks might gasp for air for that. Well, yeah. <laughs> no matter how much he's making. Well, most of the celebrity people, and and here's the thing. Speaking of celebrity people, I, I want to bring up something else that is kind of exciting, mm-hmm. in the sense that it's it's another space tourist. Um, right around in the early part of uh, December, um, Space Adventures announced, and I got to hand it to Space Adventures. This is a company who has delivered on what they promised to deliver. And they didn't announce it until the deal was signed. Kudos to Space Adventures. They've done their homework. They're doing an awesome job. And here's the deal. For for those of you uh, are, who are familiar with Sarah Brightman, she's a, a singer from, from Britain, uh, finalized a 10-day trip to the ISS. We don't have a date yet, uh, although they may be announcing that soon if they haven't already. Um, she is, I think, if my count is correct, and I, I invite callers to, to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe she is number eight in a line of space tourists who have been to, this, to the space station and come home, and most of the prior seven have had a wonderful time. And since you reminded us about the call-in, uh, I guess call-in number is 714-242-5145. That's 714 714- Two four two five one four five. We're going to keep rolling, but we definitely invite you guys to, uh, you know, call in and talk to us. Or if you can't call because it's uh, long distance, and the chat's right there. Just type in the question or comment, and I will definitely share it with uh, Don and everyone else. So, uh, thanks, Patty. Now I get back on my soapbox. Yeah, no. <laughs> That's all right. I I don't want to knock Golden Spike without uh, good reasons, but here's the thing. As a space enthusiast, and I've been a space enthusiast since I sat in front of that TV in 69 and watched them two guys land. But here's the problem that I have. $1.5 billion. That's actually pretty close to what NASA would do. That's really close to how NASA would do it. And I'm willing to bet, based on the history, that they would follow the NASA track. These are NASA engineers, by the right, way. Right, right, but they're they're dealing with private money. So did NASA. Well, okay. They were dealing true. with private contractors. 
And right, but that's that's different. It still had government was still controlling. That's true, and they, once they set a budget, mm-hmm. you know, they they probably had a lot of advantages. But here's here's the biggest problem that I have. This this approach that's going to cost one and a half billion dollars. Yeah. No. Yeah, we're that's not. that's 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 way out of the ballpark. Yeah, yeah. The, one of the phrases that was that was quoted was is that was a, yeah that's is, oh, yeah. And this is a quote from a gentleman named Stern associated with them. And it says, the trick is 40 years old. We know how to do this. The difference is now we have rockets and capsules in inventory. They're already developed. Um, We don't have to invent them from a clean sheet of paper. We don't have to start over. But I got to wonder, at $1.5 billion, you know, here's the thing. If they've contracted with SpaceX for a ship, I'm presuming that they're probably going to launch off of SpaceX's Falcon Heavy. Yeah, Falcon Heavy at this point is $100 million. Now, that includes the capsule plus enough weight to send up perhaps the service module analog that would get them to lunar orbit and back. Now, the Dragon is already designed for a soft landing on the surface of the moon. It's already capable of doing that, assuming they achieve their man rating from from NASA and and the FAA. So that alone would provide the basic basic materials at $100 So I I have to wonder, you're looking at a three-day trip, one way, so that's six days round trip for transit. You've got uh, the the three to the, you've got about a day's time for Earth liftoff and Earth landing. You've got another uh, half a day for lunar landing and another three to three to two to three hours for lunar liftoff. So we're looking at what three, six, seven, eight days travel time now, and if you leave two days. Um, on the surface of the moon, you're looking at a 10-day trip. Now, the resources to provide for two people there are fairly similar to what they did for Apollo. And, you know, that was an expensive mission because it was practically a one-off. Right. Not to mention they did all that cost-plus stuff from their contractors, so there was no accountability amongst the, the vendors and so forth like this to no whiff them and if you don't know what WIFM is, is what's in it for me. There wasn't any WIFM for the contractors to provide something at a competitive price instead of their greedy little pockets. Hmm. Um, but if we as a species are to achieve the level of technology that gets us to space as a species, oh, wow. it ain't going to be through the NASA paradigm. It ain't going to be using a political paradigm, sending two people up for a 10-day trip with two days sitting on the surface of the moon and then coming home. That is not going to happen. You're not going to get the guy down on the street even interested. No. It's a bunch of government playboys. (laughs) And that's how the public is going to see it. Oh, yeah, that's exciting. Okay, see you later. i got to go play with my iPhone. But it's not really exciting because there's no way for them, like you said, you know, that picture of, of Alaska. Yeah, you know, all we're getting is a picture of Alaska. Exactly. We're not getting it, you know any touch and feel 
or, or any any kind of excitement involved with there because we've already been there. Exactly. You know, we, we're not interested because we can't touch it. There are a handful of companies in the new space community that I send out kudos to. And again, I'm going to mention Space Adventures again. Space Adventures has put seven, almost eight, it'll be eight private citizens into orbit. They are the company that I got. I got. I got to take hat off and and pat them on the back. They are doing what nobody else can do. Now, granted, twenty million dollars a seat, but this is a ten-day cruise that they're paying for for ten million. Now, I can. I remember dimly that the cost. Ten million for ten days. It's it's a twenty million dollar minimum trip. I mean, that's that's two million a day. That's that's two million a day. Now, not too many, granted, not too many people can afford that. <laughs> right. But i got to tell you, with the lottery rates being up around half a billion dollars, there are still a lot of people who could afford it. So Space Adventures at least has a marketplace that they can capitalize on for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Golden Spike at $1.5 not even. Nowhere even close. Yeah. It's not a marketable business plan. It makes you wonder why they bothered to to even say anything about that. Well, sure. I'm thinking that, you know, given, okay, New Gingrich Gingrich is involved and NASA engineers are involved. So what I'm thinking. Even he he afforded this? I mean, this is it. I don't know. If their own board can't even afford it, then what are they thinking? It's. I think it's more about the announcement than it is about anything else. Oh. And if Newt Gingrich is involved... There's some kind of excitement there when, when it's like, are they mad? <laughs> well, who knows? Who, who, who's to say? Who's to say? We're you not know, sure. I mean, there sure could be enough people out there with... with uh, <laughs> there could be enough people out there with $750 million in their pocket, burning a hole in their pocket oh, that yeah. they've got to spend on a trip to the moon. <laughs> sure a little our way would be nice. You know, sure. There's always that. Um, but anyway, I was I was talking about new space companies that actually have been making investments in getting more people to space that don't be, that aren't making billions of dollars in a day. Okay, and and Space Adventures is one of these companies. Now, most of these missions that Space uh, Adventures is following on are going up on the Russian Soyuz craft, which has a whole host of other issues. You've got you've got passport issues with with NASA. You've got uh, well, maybe not for the Brits, but you still got partnership agreements that have to be addressed. You've right. got making sure there's enough supplies up there. You've got all of the issues of um, uh, in this case, Sarah Brightman, a British citizen traveling on a Russian um, spacecraft, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there's a whole host of liability forms that they've got to sign and agree to. Um, and insurance and all the other yeah. things that all the legal lawyer stuff where the lawyers make all the money and nobody else gets anything yes, out of it. But you've got all of those issues that go into this. And so that price tag of 20 plus million, and keep in mind, they're not paying just 20 million for this trip. They're paying more than 20 million. I guarantee it. Well, yeah. The advertised price for a seat on a Russian trip to space is 20 million plus. Okay. Yeah. So, you know these people are paying more for that. Yeah. Okay. Now, you then go on 
and other companies that are actually making headway in this area, of course, Virgin Galactic, Richard Branson's baby, that he uh, sponsored off of Burt Rutan's Spaceship One um, endeavor a few years ago. An awesome deal with some wonderful new ideas that actually worked, and now they're building a fleet of ships. So hopefully in 2013 or first part of 2014, I expect somewhere in that range, are going to actually start launching and carrying people up and get this for the price tag of, if I remember correctly, I don't have my notes in front of me, I believe it was uh, 20000 No, that was the down payment. 200000 I want to say. i, I got to look that up. Um, but at least, you know, it's not a million dollars. Right. You don't have right. to be a millionaire to take this flight. Right. And if and again, they're looking at sending up, uh, I believe it's five or six people on a trip. You're going suborbit, so you're going up about 62 miles, give or take. And in that space, you're going to achieve weightlessness. You'll see the curvature of the Earth. You'll get right. to see the edge but of it's space. Very short period of time, though. It is just about a five or a ten minute period of weightlessness. Their video even suggests that you can actually get out of the seat, float around, and enjoy the weightlessness. Of course, assuming you're not subject to motion sickness <laughs> or the lack of motion thereof. So, yeah, a lot of challenges. But now let's look at it's some others. It's a bummer if you couldn't get out of their seat. Oh, yeah, fly all that place and can't get out of your seat. It'd, 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 be like, uh, it'd be like taking a plane trip to... Um, to, um, going to Alaska and not getting out and actually... Not getting out of the plane because you're stuck in a, in a seatbelt that won't release. You, you watch it from the TV set. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a bummer. That would be a bummer. <laughs> Have your seatbelt get locked and you can't get oh, out of the man. seat. Oh. I guarantee you I'd find a way to carry a knife blade on that plane flight. I had a dream about that once. <laughs> oh. But, uh, you know, let's let's keep on going. you got, you got space you got space adventures. We've got... Uh, Virgin Galactic. Yeah. Also in the suborbital group, you've got X-Core and Blue Origin is also working on that. They're also working on an, on an orbital trajectory, so um, they're working in, in different directions. Uh, there is, um, gosh, I can't well, remember the list here's, anymore. Here's the question. You know, I remember a few years ago when you informed me about all these companies, and I was in shock because here I am, a space enthusiast. I mean, obviously, anywhere near uh, as enthused as you are, and you and Tom Hanks are probably in the same boat. But no, thanks for the good company. <laughs> he, he, would, he, would, he would get rid of everything and, and go to the moon if he could, and so would you. So you're both in the same boat. But uh, the, the issue is that, you know, this company giving an announcement at this point about the billion dollars mm-hmm. tag. At least they actually put it out because you know honestly, a lot of the other companies I didn't know about them until until you said, hey, you know these private industries are actually doing something. And that was several years ago. Well, and here's the thing: back in 06, 2006, Bigelow Aerospace, Robert Bigelow uh, was uh, a hotel owner, national international hotel owner. Um, and he decided to start a space company, and he bought the rights to NASA's old Transhab from back in the 80s, an inflatable. He worked it out, got it to working, and in 06, he launched the first prototype. In 07, he put a second prototype in orbit. Those two modules, last I checked as of February of this year, are still in orbit. They're still intact. They still have their atmosphere in place. Uh, they're not sending telemetry back anymore, right. but, I mean... 
I'd be in severe dire straits after six years in orbit too, but <laughs> my brain would be a bit fried. But Bigelow has done that. He is simply waiting now for um, the marketplace to open up so that he can ship up his research hotel and begin taking on business and, and, and corporate customers for be it tours, be it research, be it business uh, processes. Uh, you've got, um, and of course, SpaceX actually has now demonstrated the capacity to deliver not only cargo, but the Dragon as a cargo craft at this point is very soon to be man-rated within the next year, I'm sure. Man-rated? Man-rated. The ship is designed to carry seven people in orbit. Okay. The Dragon is also designed for its cargo configuration that it uses currently. Now, one thing about the, the Dragon that, that's really interesting, they, they expanded on the original Apollo module by adding not just the cargo capacity in, inside the pressurized capsule, but they've added a trunk on the bottom of it that they can carry unpressurized cargo or stuff that doesn't need to be protected from space. Additional experiments. And, of course, just like most of the capsules, and this is a big bugaboo for me, stuff that they send to the ISS, they throw all that stuff, all their trash, all their used experiments, they throw it into the capsule. They, the Typically, into the Soyuz capsules, they throw them away as trash. I know. i, I got to tell you, there's there's probably... Here they've been toting uh, recycling all these years, and, yeah. and they're throwing away our biggest pieces. Exactly. <laughs> Well, here's something. You know, the, the biggest unit that gets sent up uh, uh, is, I believe, the European ATV. There's been there's been a handful of them go up since they, they sent the first one up. Also gets packed with trash, pushed away from the station, and burns up in the atmosphere. Now, that thing is probably worth 60 to $100 million alone. All of that, that heavy metals that they've put into that, the design, the, the fuel tanks. And it, granted, you know, I, I understand it on, on one hand that there's just no room to store these capsules in the vicinity of, of the space station. And I can understand that. Makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But to throw it away. Oh, man. And we're talking the space. Here's something a lot of people don't know. That space station's been up there either under construction or since its completion, for almost 20 years. Well, this, this is it. I mean, you, you're talking about, you know, whether grocery stores out to you paper or plastic, and yet they're throwing away all these precious metals. So, well, yeah. And, and it's like, uh, you, it's you just, amazing. you, you got to wonder about the NASA way of doing things. Yeah. And that's good. that explains your billion-dollar price tag on Exactly. To go to, to go to the moon and come back for a two-day stopover. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, at, at least, you know, you pay five thousand dollars for a Caribbean cruise. You at least Not get personally. to you get to go out on deck. You get to take the skiff into shore. You get to spend a day or two in each port that you stop. Right. Right. You know. I mean, talk about Alaska. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, Which like and, that, and that kind of brings us over to Elon Musk and. This 80,000 people a year to Mars. Now, I, I can appreciate 
the grand vision of Elon Musk's statement. Uh But I got to wonder about whoever it was that fed him that 80,000 people a year number. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I actually... I I wonder what kind of business he's in. (laughs) (laughs) I did some preliminary math, and there's some real stumbling blocks to this. And and I list and and I actually took a look at the at the video, um, where he talks about and makes where he talks about how this would work. And mm-hmm. one of the very first things that he says is, first of all, we're going to need a bigger ship. Well, duh. duh. But when you're talking eighty thousand people a year, you've got what maybe a, a three month window to deliver these people from Earth to Mars. So you're not sending eighty thousand people a year to Mars. You're sending eighty thousand people in three months. You think he's considering perhaps that we think we need to build like the Enterprise? I mean, you know, no, I think he's looking ship. at something about the size of Arc Two. Okay. I mean, Arc Two had thousands of people on it. Okay. I mean, the Enterprise had what four thousand maybe max in the Enterprise D. I'm sure somebody could tell us. Yeah. Come on, I'm you sure guys. Somebody will. Um, <laughs> but even so, and and. Let me let me offer this. Okay. Now I I've ragged on these people. And and Elon Musk, I'll tell you what, I wish I had a friend like Elon Musk. Here's a man who has gone from um PayPal mm-hmm. to uh SpaceX mm-hmm. and Tesla. SpaceX is uh last I heard turning a profit now. Uh e uh Tesla is close to turning a profit. Um and here, here's a man. How many years? Mm, I don't know. Tesla's been around five, six years. I want to say. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's been in the news enough mm-hmm. uh, since he announced it. But that that shows a a successful business model. Right? It shows it shows that he's got a head for business to right. make it into so a success. So I mean, he turned PayPal into a, this huge right. business. Um, but, but that's not the that kind of business. It's not space business. No, it's not. But but here's the thing. Elon Musk has a head for this. Okay. He has an understanding of the profit and the loss, clearly, right. because he's taken SpaceX from this dream of going to space and turned it into a freaking business mm-hmm. that actually works. Yeah. But not only that, I mean, this guy has achieved in in the, 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 the seven to ten years that he's been in business in SpaceX, he has created a miracle from the perspective of looking at NASA's history. It took NASA approximately, what, seven to ten years in the Apollo program and going through the stepping stones that they did. Now, granted, Elon Musk was able to build on exist on all of the lessons learned oh, in that time. Sure, so, sure. so you know, he's he's been able to fast-track everything. Mm-hmm. But in his seven to ten years that, that they've been developing the SpaceX platform, Elon has done so much more for this platform, this launching system, because he's brought the cost from billions of dollars per launch. And, and, and Google the, 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 the space shuttle. This was supposed to be a reusable platform. Yeah. And to a certain degree, it was reusable. It went up and it came back down and it came back down generally intact. We lost two out of, what, seven, I think it was. But that's actually pretty good odds for the most part. And I, and I, and I give NASA kudos for making that complicated a ship work. It's an awesome piece of equipment. I mean, I mean, its capabilities, what it could do. I know. But 
you're talking, it never lived up to what the engineers thought it could do. And all of this, I believe, me, is due to the government, taxpayer-funded way of doing business in the military-industrial complex. There, I said it. Uh I got the little buzzword out there. Where everything is cost plus, where the vendor doesn't take any risk, which I think is a bad idea. But at the same time, Elon has taken the risk. He's delivered a marketable product and service at a price more than just competitive. And in fact, I, I, I kind of chuckled. He was asked point blank about Europe's Ariane Space uh, launch system. And he says, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, so please listen to the video, read the article to get it correct, but I'm, I'm going to try and paraphrase here. I don't have my notes in front of me. That Ariane 5 cannot compete with SpaceX's Dragon and Falcon 9. Okay. And heaven forbid when he brings the Falcon Heavy on board. You know, yeah. at, at $60 million a launch, That's, putting yeah. right around 2,000 pounds of, of cargo into orbit, there isn't a launch system on the planet, I don't think, that can compete. At least I haven't found one. So, you know, these these are things that are really important. And if, if the space industry, such as it is, is going to move forward to embrace a way that's going to broaden their market, then they've got to bring these costs down. They've got right. to look at the ways that a business does that. And Elon even rep- represents model he is at least considering is the um, commercial airline industry. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and you know that, that sparked a little attention. And, and I, I did some some quick googling and found out that on average, mm-hmm. a seven forty seven yeah. costs in the range. Of about sixty dollars a nautical mile to fly. Wow. Okay. Now that's that's sixty dollars a mile. We're used to thinking in miles per gallon. We go down, we buy a gallon of gas for between three fifty four bucks, and we get out of that miles out of that one gallon of gas, we're getting anywhere from fifteen to fifty miles a gallon, depending on the kind of vehicle. Yeah. Here they're talking. This is an obscene number. Sixty dollars <laughs> per mile. Okay, but they're making money, and here's the kicker, at $60 per mile, now now that's cost, okay, you throw a markup in there, and you you know, figure their pricing is is probably in the range of between $1 and $200 per nautical mile at the ticket price, by the time you get all the extra fees in there, that's what we're paying as consumers, okay, and maybe it's not that, I don't know. Of course, you spread that across 200 passengers, and the price per person per mile comes down a great deal. But, okay, so if we relate that up, the current cost, well, well, let's see, where's my calculator? Give me a calculator there. Okay. You take, and let's just use the the Falcon, Falcon 9. You can take seven people up. If you start with the basic price for a Falcon 9 of $60 million, you divide that by seven, you're looking at approximately 850 grand per seat. All right, so we're going to use that um, for a comparison. 
we need to bring that down to well below the suborbital cost. Yeah. Dragon seats need to come down to the range of $120,000 per seat before we're going to expand the market enough to make it sustainable to the private market. Until that happens, we're going to have some serious issues. But here's the bugaboo. Elon Musk and his business with his business look is already thinking on those terms because his progress project right now on Grasshopper to create a reusable launch system. Now this is not an easy thing to do. The Grasshopper has already had two tests so far, reasonably successful. Now they haven't gone very far. They they got off maybe I think the second one got about seven feet off the ground. But Taking a 10-story cylinder full of fuel, getting it to go straight up seven feet, and then come back down, that's that's a pretty impressive feat. And it comes down and stays straight. That's pretty impressive. i got to hand it to, to him and his team. So, But I've heard it said that the reusable components have the potential to bring the cost of space launch down by 10, what was the word? Uh, 10 levels, 10, 10, 10 orders of magnitude, which okay. potentially could bring that cost per seat on a Dragon Craft down to the range of $120,000 per person. Wow. Which at that price, what was the latest you heard on a, on a mortgage for an average four-bedroom house? Four bedroom, I have no idea. Well, okay. What was the last mortgage price you heard? $150,000. $150,000 for what size home? I don't know. Okay. I haven't been in that market in so long. <laughs> See, I'm not a real estate agent. So I have there no you idea. go. But here's the thing. Here's a scenario to scare you. Guy's got a house paid off. Okay. Uh-huh. Let's say he's living a hundred fifty thousand dollar home. Uh-huh. He can take a hundred thousand dollars off off of that by getting a mortgage. Uh-huh. Go take his trip to orbit on Dragon, and come home and go back to work the next week. <laughs> yeah. I mean that that brings it down yeah. to to a point that makes it possible. Well, that's an interesting idea. Okay. I mean, that'd be and one I kid of, you not, one, there, one of my time thing. Mm-hmm. Well, here's yeah. let's bring it down even further. Okay. There are people who will take and put a cruise. They will save up for a while. They'll pay their credit cards down. They'll put cash in the bank, and they'll prepare for a $5,000 cruise. All right. So okay. They, so they break their gold card. They they, they, yeah. they break their gold card, and then they pay it off yeah. over the course of the next couple of years. Yeah. All right. So. So the scenario that an average person sure, might be able to mortgage their house to go on a, a two to ten day trip is within the feasible range. If Elon Musk can succeed in bringing that cost down that ten orders and of magnitude, if you've got a, a two story house in a decent neighborhood, then two hundred fifty thousand or two hundred thousand. Then the equity that you've built up is more than enough to cover yeah, the cost of one ticket. House, yeah. I mean, and and space adventures could have a, fa- a heyday with this. Yeah, I mean, we're talking. Yeah. Uh, heaven forbid, and not to jinx it, but one could have a three-hour tour in space. <laughs> you would get that in. 
I, you know, I miss watching Gilligan's Island. That was a riot. But, you know, and there's a reason I bring it up, and you're going to love this. You're going to laugh at this. <laughs> Gilligan's Island is a classic among TV shows because it demonstrated the professor's ideas of taking his engineering knowledge mm-hmm. and coming up with down-to-earth solutions for day-to-day challenges. That's true. That's true. Definitely true. And, that, you know... So the use of the bamboo there was just <laughs> you have to give them a well, big thumbs up the there. The bamboo and the and the vines to create an exercise yeah, bike that yeah. doubles as a power generator. I know. I know. Now <laughs> I do I have to give them credit though, in Killing's Island. Now if you remember, they didn't generate that much power, which is true. A human powered bicycle yeah. doesn't generate that much power no matter how hard you pedal. Right. But it is enough to charge a battery so that you can listen to a radio. Right. Okay? So that that makes kind of sense. So there was a lot of truth in those solutions that, that the professor and the skipper all came up with while on that island. It's that principle that I think needs to come into play as we move forward into space. So what you're saying is more handyman approach to to getting to space. I think yes. And living there. I think yes. And, and Elon Musk, while not taking a handyman approach, he does take a business model approach. In right. general, and again, I'm, I'm speaking generally here, his approach is you've got to make it profitable. It's got to be profitable. So how can we bring the, prof, the cost point down far enough to have a price point that can encourage a larger market, that we can tap into a larger market? Now, he's achieved at this point, with his contract to supplying the space station with supplies, he's got a 12-trip contract. He's made his first one, and I and I believe they're making preparations for the second trip. And I know that Elon Musk has already geared up their manufacturing thing so they can put out enough, more than enough, Dragon capsules and SpaceX and Falcon 9 ships to meet whatever demand they're likely to be faced with. But what he also does is, I am sure, because they've brought everything in the house. They do 90% of their, if not more, of the engineering and the design and the assembly is done in-house. There you go. Which saves them costs because contractors cost them more. they got more overhead. Well, sure. Well, they mark it up. Yeah. So Elon Musk has, has... He's got a lot on his shoulders, but he's doing a lot with that. And, and, And again, great kudos to that. But I think that what Elon Musk has demonstrated this ability to bring the cost down from the government-funded boondoggle to an actual business-centric model makes a lot of sense. And if we use that as the core, bring in the idea that we touched on a moment ago about using the handyman tools, the handyman perspective, to use the tools at your disposal Mm-hmm. And not limit yourself to high-tech, industrial complex resources, you can accomplish a lot. You don't need a nuclear-powered water pump to get water out of the ground. You can use an old cast iron hand pump and get just as much, if not more, for far less cost. Yeah. Not to mention, you're not beholden to some company in the Midwest for spare parts. And that's going to be a big bugaboo as we start moving out into space 
whether it be the moon, whether it be Mars, or whether it be asteroids, or, heaven forbid, we actually get to the point where we can move out beyond this solar system and into the stars. His quote that he's talking about here in his view may have been because um, it was an answer to a threat on Earth that if Earth was in jeopardy, we could very well take 800,000 or 80,000 people. The reality is is we can't take 80,000 people yet. There will come a time, I have no doubt. But it's going to take... But not on a SpaceX rocket. It won't be on a SpaceX rocket. Nothing in current design or in current purview, in current imaginings that I can see. And believe you me, I surf the web weekly looking for stuff. Yeah. Okay. There's just nothing that comes close that is a blend of can-do resources that incorporates decent engineering within a 10- or 15-year time frame. I mean, here's the thing. We're looking at people going to the moon. Do you know that the earliest date they're talking about is 2020 for a landing for anybody? Even NASA's not talking about talking about an actual landing, assuming they get their launch system going until the mid-20s. And yet, SpaceX is here with a capsule that is already designed for the purpose of a soft landing, either on Earth or on the moon. Once it again, once it attains its its man-rated landing, man-rated uh, man rating. So, but, and I think that once Grasshopper comes into play, and he can then do all of the um, reusability elements and bring that price per seat down, that's going to make a whole huge difference. But again, Elon Musk, and I, and I, this is a great deal. He's focused. He's focused on orbit. Now, he's probably got design teams over here looking at how do we extend ourselves into the into the lunar sphere as well. And that's awesome. But he's not making announcements like that. He's making a general announcement that we need to be sending 80,000 people a year to Mars. I agree with that. However, there's no physical way right now with our technology we could even come close. Because remember, as I said, the launch window to getting people to Mars is about three, maybe four months from the Earth to Mars. And that's because most of the time, the other nine months out of the year, Mars is so far away, it would take way longer to get there. Okay. Okay. So we've got three months out of the year to send these 80,000 people. Yeah. Not going to happen. No. I mean, even at that rate, where did the calculator go? There it is. Um I mean, here, here's here's an example. You take eighty thousand, um, you divide that by three months. Uh, what did I do? I didn't. I hate calculators. Eight zero 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 divided by three months equals that's uh, twenty six thousand people a month, <laughs> which would be almost twenty thousand a day. No, no. In that in that frame. Twenty thousand. Oh, twenty thousand a month, which would be thirty days would be eight hundred eighty-eight. Okay, so so nine hundred people. Nine hundred people a, a day. day. Okay. Now I did figure out there was some modifications. Wow. The SpaceX fairing. I'm calculating that well, down. Yeah, but here's something to think about: the SpaceX fairing. If you could figure out a way to do, I, I figured out that with a certain orientation, you could fit fifty people, give or take one or two. Uh-huh. Into that 
faring volume. Okay? And you might be able to carry enough oxygen and IV supplies and put them to sleep and put them on a three-day journey and get them to lunar orbit within three, three, three and a half days. And that's from launch to orbit, and they'd be wakened up there and use the airlock and transferred over. You could get 50 people there on his ship right now. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure their engineers could figure out how to get all the life support in place and, and so forth and so forth. Um, and if they're sleeping again, that reduces their requirements and so forth. And three days isn't that bad to sleep. Right. You know, we, we get people in comas for years, and they wake up and, boom, they're okay. It takes some effort, but three days is, a, is almost a no-brainer. Um, but I wouldn't mind three days of sleep. <laughs> could be interesting. But that would be one, one way. But e- even so, if you factored in 50 people per ship and you staged them at the moon for the launch to Mars, uh-huh. we said how many? 800 people, 900 people yeah. per trip, per day? Yeah. Okay. I can't imagine how big that ship would have to be, much less the quantity of fuel, much less the resources it would take to do that, I, I I don't know that we can garner that kind of resources. That's why I say. I don't think we can marshal that about, kind of resources. Talking about the enterprise. There's no, 4,000 people. 4,000. Yeah, this no. would be 80,000. This would be 20 I, I, I enterprises. If we would have to go up on, on a, on a uh, daily Even basis. The en- no, no, wait a minute. Even the enterprise couldn't carry more than an extra 1,000 people. Well, yeah. You're still talking to carry uh, nine hundred. Say it's even it out to a thousand people a day. Even the enterprise couldn't do that. Well, not not only not to mention that we actually docked the enterprise yeah. according to Basin. Right. Uh, docked the enterprise uh, up in orbit or semi-orbit. Well, the enterprise had the capacity. She had multiple transporter pads, so right. you could probably bring up between ten and twenty people at a time and yeah. bring them on board. Okay. okay. So you could you could bring you could bring 800 people up on the Enterprise in a day and then you could ship off to Mars, but you'd need it would look like India. <laughs> you'd need a, a a fleet of ships to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and they would not so, be getting their rooms. They'd be I mean there'd be people everywhere. Oh yeah. There'd well, I don't, like I don't know if you remember the day they picked up that whole colony one day and you had this gort oh, she was an awesome looking redhead. Okay, let's get over that. Her Riker with the thing about starting at the feet and working your way up. I'm sorry. Where were we? <laughs> I think you're back at the toes again. It's a wonderful fantasy. But even if we had a star drive, Especially that one. Even, we, even if we had a warp drive that gave us the capacity for a ship that could carry 4,000 people, 80,000 people a year even, is unreasonable. That's, that's astounding. But let, let me offer a counter proposal then. There you go. I've done some preliminary calculations okay. based on a lot of this stuff, and I've had some friends uh, provide some tools that help me understand the relationship between fuel and life support requirements in getting people just to the moon. And people like Hop. <laughs> Hop yeah. David. Hop David, a wonderful friend. Um, we're, we're, I guess we're more acquaintances, but we met at the Moon Society, and he's, he's, he's got a great mind. He's got, he's got a math mind like a steel trap. 
Um, and he sent me a spreadsheet that allows me, gives, he gave me the delta Vs, the fuel information, to be able to plug in values so that I could calculate out what I'd need. And I learned very quickly that the ship I wanted to send wouldn't work. Well, it had to be a lot bigger Because there was no way I could get enough fuel up into orbit. Right. But by making some judicious choices, and I have no doubt that NASA's engineers, SpaceX engineers, X-Corps, Blue Origin, they're all struggling with these things where you've got to make compromises to find the right mix that, that achieves the goals you have set. But even with that, with a very Spartan setup and with a goal that says we're going to homestead the moon instead of go up there and doing science experiments and come back. Mm. Now, the first principle is if you're not coming back, you're saving half the cost. You're saving half the cost of the mission right there. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. don't come back. Yeah. And we've talked about this before on this show and in, mm. in some, some articles and essays and so forth. And there was the, the whole suggestion not long ago uh, about sending people to Mars on a one-way trip. And the surprising thing that there were over 400 that responded overnight saying they'd go in a yeah, heartbeat. Yeah. And there are a lot of people. But we still run into two issues. One is... And those are just people who actually get on the Internet and say so. <laughs> yes, that's true. A lot of them. I won't be on the Internet. But there's two issues that still face these people. One is, when you get there, how do you establish a long-term habitat? Second issue... How do you provide supplies for that habitat? Mm -hmm. And third, how do you fund the initial trip in such a way that you're not putting a huge dent in your resources to get there and survive? Well, we should put people like Tom Hanks in charge <laughs> and do a big benefit. Well, there you go. That could be cool. And, uh, you know, get all these restars and, 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 you know, high ups. Have all the money, and I think that's one aspect. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I talk about in the pamphlet that I put out is that if you're going to send regular people to space, yes, the space community says we've got to bring the cost per pound down, and even and Elon Musk is one of space adventures is delivering people to space at current rates in order to keep the dream alive, and I think that's also outstanding. That's important. Yeah. I just wish there was more news on those people and, and their experiences right. that could be shared with the general public and say, hey, yeah, this is possible. We're going to get there because we're on our way. Well, what we need is a couple of people who, who do what you just were suggesting, that they already had you know, no money, uh, they already paid off for the house, and they were able to take that second mortgage right. or whatever and be able to actually put down on, on this dream. Exactly. Well, let me let me just take a minute and outline what I talk about in the pamphlet. Um, first of all, it's got to be a for-profit company. It cannot be a government-funded trip. Yeah. And and that's the very first thing. And I go into detail in the new book that explains why it has to be for-profit. And, in fact, Elon Musk demonstrates this, that it has to be for-profit. If you don't have a business model, you're not going to succeed. It's going to be a flash in the pan like almost every scientific mission that NASA puts up. Yes, we love Curiosity. Yes, we love its, its soon-to-be-launched in the next year or two uh, companion. Mm -hmm. And we love what it tells us about Mars. But here's the deal. These are one-off missions. And they are expensive out the wazoo. And 
yeah, NASA is going to put another one up there, but they're going to probably go through the same cost plus whole process to get the mission done instead of saying, hey, Boeing or whoever built it, build us another one. You've got six months, and we want to launch before the end of the year. They're just not going to do that. Yeah. You know, they're not going to say build it exactly like you did the first one. So what we have to do is consider that very paradigm. Our first mission has to be the same as the next five. To do that, we have to follow Elon Musk's model and the model that Boeing does for the aircraft they deliver to American Airlines and Southwest and, and all of these things. They've got to be something that's reusable. It's got to be priced in a way that the companies can use it in their business model to make a living. But here's the next thing. The goals of the mission cannot be science-related for the first four or five missions, and perhaps even longer. Because the idea is to get the people up there. The idea is to get people up there who can live, who can survive. But not only that, there's another more subtle issue. Well, not only that, but there's a more subtle issue here. When NASA trains astronauts, for a science mission to the moon, as they did in Apollo, mm-hmm. okay? These astronauts go through more than two years of training relevant to that specific mission. Mm-hmm. There are scenarios on scenarios on scenarios on what could go wrong. And they get into such detail that they're trying to solve every single problem they're going to face when they arrive. But here's the rub. There's no way to do that. And there is a, they do it for the the week or so missions that they accomplish. And it works for short-term missions, especially if you're coming home. But this one's not coming home. This is not going up and coming back. So it's got to be approached from a completely different perspective. Right. Now, if we go back in history, and I love the example of the pioneers who went west from the East Coast back in the the mid-1800s. Now, theirs was a survivor-die yeah. Point of view. Yeah. And they they didn't mortgage anything. They sold every belonging they had. Mm-hmm. They cobbled together whatever they could beg, borrow, or steal. And they headed west on, be it horseback, wagon, and some even traveled west by handcart walking the whole way. Now, you got to hand it to people willing to do that. Yeah. We need, and, and here's something people need to remember. The railroad wasn't there yet. The railroad didn't show up until after people were living there. Right. I mean, it's not like you build the day will come. That's right. Yeah, because railroad was a business. Exactly. And so, you know, these things have to happen in their own way to build the infrastructure that has to exist before you can engage commerce. And you've got to have products from the moon before you can have commerce. And here I'm going to really rip on a few people. I love scientists for their wonderful, oh, how shall we say, grand visions. (laughs) There's been a resurgence recently on the Internet where they're talking about mining the moon for helium-3 to be used and marketed for millions and potentially billions of dollars on Earth for the use in fusion reactors. Oh, give me a break. Oh, no. The fusion reactors haven't even hit break-even yet. They're nowhere near close. And they've been saying it's only 20 years out. 
Well, let's take a optimistic view here. <laughs> if they're 20 years out, it takes us 10 years to get to the moon. There's still 10 years before there's an active fusion reactor that's producing anything that's using enough to draw a marketplace. Oh, my goodness. Now, if you took all of them together and everybody, everybody bought a horde of helium-3 for their test reactor, yeah, you might have a marketplace for some helium-3. But here's the second rub. You've got to mine tons of lunar soil to get one ton of helium-3. And then you got to pay to have it shipped back to Earth. Yeah, and you're doing all this light, yeah. Here you are outside mining or mining within your... And i got to tell you, even if you're using robots to do this, um, that lunar regolith plays hell with everything. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, it eats into the bearings. It eats into... <laughs> if it, 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 it just chews right into the metal. Um, so if you don't have some way to repair your robots, right. you're up a creek. Yeah. You, you could send 100 of them. And I guarantee you... Within your first six months, you're going to have half of them broke. They're just not that reliable yet. Right. Whether teleoperated, autonomous, or whatever, they're just, we don't have the technology to deal with this yet. But here's the rub. You put some homesteaders on there, mm -hmm. and I guarantee you that within six months, they will have the capacity oh, they have to. to produce more marketable products than the helium-3 could generate in, in a year or two. Well, they have incentive. It's a do-or-die situation. There you go. <laughs> but not only that, and here's something that I think a lot of people are forgetting, and I want to touch on this because this is important. Why would I want to order, let's say, a great metal, platinum, okay? Why would I want to manufacture platinum on the moon and then ship it to Earth? Let's look at the cost of mining platinum on the moon and shipping it to Earth. Right. Okay. We are talking probably on the order of one to two million dollars to it. mine it, right. process it, and then ship it to Earth. They can mine more platinum on Earth faster and for a heck of a lot cheaper yeah. than we could ever mine it on the moon. Okay. Well, let me ask a question. I know some people are talking about you know, mining uh, these. Uh, um, other foreign objects that are going around our Earth right now? Asteroids. Asteroids. Well, and here's the deal. If you do that, if you do that, you're not going to ship anything down to Earth. Not going to happen. Okay, so where would it go? Orbit. Okay, so in other words, using it on the moon. Yeah. Or storing it for other uses. Well, sure. Well, let's let's go back to the platinum for a minute. The platinum metals used uh, used heavily, uh, also aluminums and things like this, generate mined and generated from the moon or perhaps an asteroid, could be shipped to the nearest planetary body and used in space for building spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And that makes a whole lot of sense. Oh yeah. I mean, here's just just to throw some really fantastical idea out here. Let's say that for the sake of argument, Robert Bigelow partners with SpaceX. Bigelow puts up first one habitat, and he's got a few business tenants that go up every once in a while, and then they go home. All right, they do their business research, and let's say they're they're coming up with ways to manufacture 
drugs uh-huh. or food crops or something that they can they can do there that they can then transfer the designs to Earth, the chemical compositions, okay? Uh-huh. And that is a marketable product on Earth because your transmission, your shipping cost is almost nothing. I mean, it's an email. Boom, done. Now, you do that. That makes sense. You design it in orbit. You send the design to Earth because you figured out all of the various different things. And there are ways on Earth that you can generate a weightless field. You can use magnetic fields. If you can use a magnetic field to suspend a um, a plasma field in a nuclear reactor, fusion reactor, and components in some object in the air to be able to generate or grow in culture some some biological valuable item that could then be used for pharmaceuticals. It could be used for growing uh, whatever biological. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things. You know, you just consider that as a way. Send the design to Earth. Don't send the product. Because getting it down to Earth and recovering it is really expensive. Okay, on 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 the order of very comparable, I'm willing to suggest of actually doing the work on Earth. Now there are limitations, and there will be things that we'll find that we can produce in orbit that makes sense to produce there and then ship down to Earth, and that makes sense. You don't have a lot of the launch well, costs. We talked a little bit about um, salvaging. Now there's there's something, but but even in salvage, here's. Consider this. You don't have the problem then of getting it down to Earth. you got to send it down to Earth. Why send platinum from orbit down to Earth? Because as part of your overhead, you've got the cost of shipping your team up. Mm-hmm. You've got the cost of shipping your equipment up. You've got the cost of shipping your fuel up. Then you've got the cost of all of your supplies for those people that you've got to keep replenishing with launches from Earth. It's not cost-effective to salvage material in orbit and send it back to Earth. It's just not cost-effective. There's no way you're going to make a profit sending all that stuff to orbit and then sending the material back down to Earth. However, but what if you look at it from a business perspective, a la Elon Musk? Can you tell he's my hero? (laughs) Even if he does have somebody on his staff with this 80,000 people a year to Mars, man, that person has really got a problem. But, the business model works. He's shown it works, not once, but twice. He's shown he's got a head for business, yeah. and that's important. So let's apply that same kind of business model. You've got to make a profit. Right. So your expenses to deliver a product can't be more than what you put into well, it. Oh, sure. But if you produce... Well, you're out of business. But if you take... All, let's take... this. This The ISS throws away uh, almost a ton of waste... At minimum once a month. Minimum once a month. Okay? That's a ton of material. comes off the ISS. And that's that's not just garbage. Okay? That's not human waste. It's not just food waste. But it includes used-up experiments. It includes materials that they've used in the course of those experiments. It may include um, uh, all sorts of stuff that could be repurposed. Yes, you'd have to have a facility to do that. But here, let me finish my scenario I started a few minutes ago. Let's say that Bigelow goes to Elon Musk and says, okay, 
we're going to ship a habitat up and put a space station up there. Then what we're going to do is we're going to put a team up there, and their job is to salvage materials from everything that SpaceX throws or that the space station throws away. So what happens instead of that capsule being thrown into Earth orbit, it's going to be transferred over to the Bigelow Station location. And let's just take the the capsules they put the trash into the Soyuz units. These go over to the Bigelow Station, and in the process, they then unload everything, and they start dividing it up. Now, let's consider there are other type of craft over at the ISS. The ATVs are worth their freaking weight in gold because these things have fuel tanks on them, big fuel tanks. All Bigelow has to do is add a unit that he's already designed, which is a docking module, mm-hmm. at the other end of the Bigelow module. Oh, yeah. And he can bring over the ATVs, the Japanese cargo units, and they've got storage space that they could begin parceling out these parts into and start deconstructing the the experiments and so forth and then reconstructing new ones. Okay. If they've got an internet link down on the ground, people could pay for components off of one experiment to be recombined into a new experiment and shipped back over to the ISS for a pittance of the cost of building it on Earth and shipping it up by ship. Wow. Now, there's a business model that Bigelow could enjoy. <laughs> and I guarantee you that there are some engineers and technicians who would love to be able to play in that kind of a clean room environment in orbit. Yeah. It's weightless, and you've got total control of that environment. Hmm. Now, there's a business model that would actually work, and it would reduce the expenses because now you don't have to ship up as many experiments. Yeah. And they could then turn around and get this. Think about an eBay from space, okay, okay. where you can buy the components off of the old experiments, turn around, buy the components. It's like recycled uh, experiments. Recycled Micro is a business here in town that does that same thing with PCs. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. You could put a recycled components on a Bigelow Habitat. There's more than enough room inside that Habitat to do this kind of business model, and everybody that's part of it could stand to make a killing. And all of that stuff that's currently thrown away off of the Internet space station is wonderful raw materials for that now here's the next thing i have no doubt that the japanese and the europeans that produce these big cargo modules would probably love to get a little return on their investment from this consortium that operates off of bigelow's unit where their property their their module gets reused and basically sold as salvage to be used for a new purpose. For sure. Why wouldn't that? That's right. But now let's take it to another step. It won't take but six months before the Bigelow Habitat's going to be have so much around it that they, they no longer have room for any more modules. Well, now oh, you've wow. got something else. Okay. Bigelow sends up another unit, and by then they've earned up enough capital that they can start refueling 
the ATVs and the Japanese cargo units so that one of them could be used for a service module to power a unit to the to lunar orbit. Wow. You refuel those things, there's enough of them going up every quarter. I, I think they've got one up either every six months or every quarter. I'd have to check my notes. But that unit has an engine built in. It's got a fuel system. Wow. Now, whether there's enough fuel capacity to get to the moon or not, I don't know, and achieve a stable orbit. But you could take two or three of those tied to a Bigelow habitat, and you could put a space station around in lunar orbit, or even take it to L to uh, lunar Lagrange 1 exactly. and start building your shipyard. Huh. Anything the Bigelow unit can't use in orbit gets shipped off to the shipyard in L1, and you can start building components and materials and biomass from all of the waste material could be recycled there. Wow. And then you you're building materials and and stuff. Granted it's coming over in my new shoe because it's human it's it's the human waste products, the, the the CO2, the carbon dioxide, the 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 human waste that could be dried into into uh uh desiccated and dried out into um uh growing media for plants. And you add into that the the plant material that they're sending back of the inedible stuff, which if they're not getting any now, they could in the future. Again, you're you're talking a reduction in the launch mass by orders of magnitude. And if Elon Musk and when Elon Musk succeeds at bringing the grasshopper online, now you've reduced the cost per pound by a marked value. Your launch frequency can now shift from cargo to people. And we now have a railroad to lunar orbit and lunar settlement. Once you've got enough people on the moon that are producing food, air, and water that resupplies the ISS and Bigelow and our um, shipyard at L1, that's their product. It's not going to be metals. It's not going to be mining. It's going to be air, food, and water from the lunar surface, and it's going to be rocket fuel from the lunar surface. And the biomass that comes out of the waste from the ISS and Bigelow and L1, all that's going to be shipped back down to become the compost and the fertilizer and all the stuff that keeps the habitat producing the air, food, and water that builds up the supplies for the Mars trip. Wow. The the whole thing about... That's a good plan. Do what? That's a good plan. It makes a whole lot more sense than shipping up millions of pounds of raw materials off the surface of Earth that can be better used both financially and those resources can be better used here. And that makes a whole lot more sense. Give the people an opportunity to go to the moon and become part of the solution who make the Mars trip happen. You know, Dr. Zubrin from the Mars Society uh, wants to go to Mars, and I and and the last I read, he is he is a big fan and, and advocate for the Mars Direct. But Mars Direct is patently, in my mind, a waste of money. Yeah. Because it it bypasses the historical precedent that we have shown that when we go to a a new frontier, we have to go in steps. You can't throw a bunch of technology into a location and expect that technology to carry your people forward into the future. You've got to land with minimum of resources and then be able to move forward solving the problems on a day-to-day basis. 
engineers on Earth cannot solve problems targeted for the one-sixth gravity and vacuum spaces of the moon. The engineers on Earth cannot solve the problems relative to living on the one-third gravity, I think it is, on, on Mars, much less the carbon dioxide atmosphere, because building an analog of that on Earth is prohibitively expensive. You can't let people live in that here. And you can't train them to deal with the low lunar or Martian gravity. We're about five, six minutes out here, and that's one of two. Remind everyone that if you have a question, you better get it in now. 714-242-5145. Question and answers, uh, comments, get them in now because we're running on time. I guess that's my cue to shut up, huh? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting close. So, um, you, you can't tell that I, I really believe in this. I, and, I and, know you, you do. Know, I, I know you I do. Just, it's, so tell us about where to find this little book of yours and what you're going for what you're doing for now. The booklet is called um where did I go? Okay. Homesteading Space Twelve Steps to a Lunar Settlement. And it's available on on Amazon. Which I've given everybody your information um on the chat. Cool. You, you guys have uh Donald's uh website which is Donald Jocks J A C Q U E S dot com. He's got more about this project and, and his others that he's interested in. Um Amazon we've got the booklet that's for sale for ninety nine cents and also it's in Kindle format for all those Kindle people. Uh for also ninety nine cents so you guys get it immediately and you can uh, uh read what he's got to say. Um and of course he's got another project coming up which is a bigger expansion of your booklet. The booklet is being expanded into uh, a formal book, a, a business plan, as it were, for making space work um, once Elon Musk gets us there. Uh, if you tie in Elon Musk and you tie in Bigelow, as I've already somewhat described, there is infrastructure there that can be used to create uh, a railroad of settlers to the moon, then Mars, and then beyond. Uh, but to do what a lot of the space community wants to do is just patently not going to work from a business perspective. And I truly believe that's the thing. Now, here, one last thing. I want to get a plug in here for something else that I'm, that I'm advocating here. If you haven't figured out, my advocacy is about getting the common man into space. We talked about Sarah Brightman going up, and she's number eight in a long list of people who paid their own way to get into space. And these are tourists. We talk about Virgin Galactic building a, a, a tourist trip into suborbit, which is still the edge of space. And 200,000 gets you that trip, um, which is a far cry from the 20 million on a Soyuz ship. Um, you've also got other uh, space act or um, space adventures, and now Golden Spike is is building systems and ways to get people to the moon as well. Check out the Space Adventures website. They have a trip to the moon listed there. If you've got the funds available, that's been up there two years, I get at least. I've been following yeah. Space Adventures. They've, they've had that plan up there for a while, yeah. long before Golden Spike ever came with it. i got to tell you, I bet you Space Adventures comes in with a heck of a lot better deal. Oh, yeah. You know, they've got the business model to make it happen. I don't trust Golden Spike, but they're the new kid on the block. We'll have to wait and see what they come up with. But, again, it's about getting the common man into space. And by common man, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking the, the 
We're talking people who don't make a million dollars a year. These people are the ones that need to have the access to space, not just for visiting, not for these these cruises, but for the ability to have a long-term business outlook that gets people into space to live on a permanent basis and get this to grow. You establish a biome on the moon, you're going to have babies eventually. You get permanent settlers on Mars, you're going to get babies. And that's where your biggest population explosion is going to occur, not from emigration. Emigration comes after you establish the settlement. So come on, people, get out there. Let be, let others know you're interested in going to space. Yeah. I Until know, the common Tom, man. Tom just saw everything and, and if you guys can get into space. So, hey, there you go. It's about <laughs> It's about the common man getting fed up with the 1%, getting fed up with the politicians, getting fed up with cost-plus designs and the government programs, and fed up with all of this stuff that the government's trying to do to interfere in our lives well, I'd like and to creating an opportunity. Well, I'd like to also about hope. Hope for a future. Exactly. Hope for the future for our children, for our grandchildren. And theirs. Yes, and theirs. And also well, the hope too. that we could see travel to the moon yeah. and Mars and beyond and in our lifetime. Which, would, which exactly. There are kids who are younger who said, we thought we were already there. Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, Robert Heinlein, all spoke on a few occasions of wishing to be able to see in their lifetime man going to space. And they're all gone now. And they're gone. So it didn't happen for them, but happen. it can't happen for us if we stand up and let People know that we, we can do it. We have to make it happen for Tom Hanks. There you go. Because Tom's such a great guy. He really is. <laughs> and, you know, there, Tom Hanks isn't the only one interested. No, no, he's not. But he's, too, he's one of the... He's one of the most vocal. One of the most vocal. He's, he's ready to sell everything and do it. And I'll bet you every one of these seven, now eight, yeah. space tourists oh, would sure. be an awesome advocate no, well, for sure, this kind of because, a program. Because they, they felt... The, the tiny morsel. They felt that desire. They felt it. So now it's like they, they probably they, well, they would just probably sell everything in order to get to go permanently. To slip the surly bounds. There is a poem. I think it's a. I believe it's a poem. The Air Force. Uh, it's part of the Air Force history. Mm-hmm. To slip the surly bonds of Earth. I wish I could remember the rest of it. I don't know how to find it. But check it out. There's a feeling there that I think, above all, embodies our hope to search out and to find and to overcome the next frontier. Enterprise said it almost as well. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise to seek out new worlds and new civilizations. And if we're going to embrace that legacy, that heritage, to see enterprise, and the Federation, everything goes with it. We have to stand up and we have to take action because the government sure ain't going to do it. And NASA's had 40-plus years, and they have, in my mind, failed. Well, they've taken us only uh, as far as they can, as I said. They really can't take us any further. Thanks for listening, folks. Well, we're down to two minutes, and uh, say goodbye to Don so we can make a couple other announcements. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us, Don. <laughs> Hopefully I haven't burned out anybody's ears or speakers. 
I wish you well. Yeah, we want to we want to make an impact, and that's just it. You know, we want to actually get you guys thinking. Also, I wanted to let you know that Don is also on Facebook, and that's also on the chat information, facebook.com slash DJ, that's Don Jocks, Mitzelplick, M-I-T-Z-L-P-L-I-C-K, Mitzelplick. Superman fans should understand that. <laughs> there you go. And also, uh, it's also the book is also available on the publisher's website at AZ like Arizona, publishingservices.com slash bookstore has capital B and capital S or go to azpublishingservices.com and you'll find the bookstore there. It's uh, on sale. There's no shipping costs on that if you go directly through the through the uh, publisher. Unfortunately, Amazon doesn't give that same kind of deal. So, with that, I uh, want to let you know that we have a uh, we have some other things coming up this this uh, month, and taking on a couple of newspapers that you guys need to know. About. So definitely look at uh, my Facebook page, which is facebook. dot com slash pj. My DJ is so that's a p pj Holstrand h u l t s t r a n d. So with uh, and have a great rest of the weekend.